But where is the place where the kind of like liberal left has been able to exhibit power? Uh, making sure that there are female and POC superheroes in our movies. Well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, what's up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we're, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of a somber tone to the episode in some ways, but also if we're going to do the uh, cheesy thing and say, but it's also a celebration of life. But really it is. It is a celebration of the life and impact of uh, anthropologist, activist, scholar, writer, and maybe one of the few public intellectuals um, of, of the past you know, couple decades, we might say, uh, David Graeber, who recently passed away this year, um, quite unexpectedly. And we're going to talk, uh, you know, more or less about his life, but um, through the lens of a particular essay that he wrote. And what's the title of the essay, Troy? Uh, it's from Harper's Magazine. It's called Army of Altruists on the Alienated Rights to Do Good. Yeah, and it's actually available in other locations as well. Um, my internet was being silly last night, and I couldn't access the Harper's site for whatever reason. So I actually found the essay on like the anarchist library. I tweeted it out. So it's on my Twitter. If you follow my Twitter, uh, it's there, Austin underscore Hayden. Um, so I tweeted it out there. I'll put it down. I'll put a link down in the show notes so you can click it there. But it's available online, you know, uh, as the good anarchist that he is. I'm pretty sure he's <laughs> um, made sure that it's everywhere available open access. So you can check that out. Occupy um, op-ed space, yes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, yes, yeah, so that's what we're going to talk about in our main segment. But before we do that, we do want to mention that if you want to support us in tangible ways, you can do so at patreon.com slash dawn. There you can get access to goodies like bonus episodes and access to be able to um, submit potential topics for our next patron-sponsored episode. So you can yeah, support it, us through various tiers there. Yeah, and Sorry, I was going to say... No, no, I was just going to say that, yeah, um, by the time this episode comes out, uh, we'll have a new, like, fielding suggestions, so, for the next topic, and then we'll run a poll, you know, in, like, a week after that, or something like that, so, um, definitely, if you're a patron, you should have gotten an email about the the new entry, which is for you to make suggestions for a topic, but definitely rush over to Patreon. Um, dot com slash owls at dawn so you can put in your ideas for something to talk about and i swear to god considering this episode will come out right after the election if you all want us to talk about like an election special then i'm gonna just i'm gonna quit i will quit <laughs> the podcast industry forever no i'm kidding but should we at least do, do a, a bonus ep uh post-election little thing for the for the patrons yes we will be doing a bonus episode we did That's that we'll in 2016 do you remember we did a live one, and I got really fucked up. You did. <laughs> I was, like, crying by the end with Matt with Matt Telly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I, it's the, it's the anything, lost episode. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's definitely – it's not in our um, archive anywhere, as far as I can tell. Um, if there's anything we've ever made that I would not want to revisit, it's the whatever four-hour series of bullshitting that we did um, in 2016. That was awful. 
Yeah, it was absolutely awful. Um, <laughs> I don't think we're going to do the same this year. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, so go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn for all of that madness. But before we get to uh, talking about David Graeber in our main segment, we do got to do that shitty minute first, yo. Yes. So if you're unfamiliar, the shitty minute is the part of the show where one of us talks about whatever's grinding our gears lately. So Austin, what's got you down? All right. I'm not a hypocrite. Let's talk about the election coming up. Um, <laughs> so by the time this episode is released, it will have passed. We will either have a new president or I can't believe it's that have. soon. It's like Christmas I know, it's, just came upon us, but it's the opposite. Well, and so this is really what my shitty minute is about. It's not even about like like the election and who's going to win and shit like that. That's not really our thing, right? And plus, to be completely honest, I just don't know. Like I really have no fucking – people ask me all the time and it's like, well, nationally Biden is up huge. The swing states – it depends on the polls, but it still looks like Biden's going to win, right? So I have no idea. That could be totally proved wrong. I've also seen some other evidence that suggests that uh, some of the uh, inadequacies of the polling data, but who knows, right? Like, is this all just hangover from 2016 and we're like, oh no, let's not repeat the same mistakes with our polling mistakes? We, I, I don't really know. We'll find out on friggin' Wednesday. Well, actually, we won't. We'll probably find out... <laughs> A week, a week after the election, because who knows how long it'll take to count all the ballots, and who knows if the Republican Party is going to contest any shenanigans if it's a close race, and I don't, I have no idea what's going on. But this is what I will say: I think part of the reason, and this actually gets me excited to talk about the main segment too, so it's kind of a, a perfect primer for that. I think part of the reason that we're not a quote politics podcast is because I think, at least for me, I don't know if I can speak for you, but I'm very dissatisfied by this thing that we call politics in the popular public sphere. I often refer to it as popular politics when I'm talking with people, and that's kind of a derogatory term in my language. And the reason it's derogatory is just because I think it's really the the sort of like... It's, it's, it's a paltry expression of, of what the word politics could be, right? Like if politics is concerned with the city, with, with um, the community, with um, the, the polis, with uh, the society, with the nation, with whatever, whatever kind of abstract unifying signifier – we uh, relate politics to, if it has to do with ordering and governance and seeking the well-being of that group, that community, whether it's a global political outlook or a more kind of national or community-based one, society-based one, um, I just think that what we come to understand as politics is a really poor expression of that impulse towards those ideas of trying to manage and create um, some sort of good society. And I think that's precisely why we're not a political podcast, because we are always going to aim for the sumum bonum, a greater good, right? And um, that doesn't mean that it's some sort of transcendent idea that we just have to find and then subsume ourselves underneath. I think both of us would reject that idea. But nevertheless, I think there's this constant striving for us to, to one, 
uh, that's motivated, one, by like a dissatisfaction of what the world presents as politics. But I think more importantly, it's this constant striving to try to figure out, okay, what, what do we mean when we talk about what politics could be, right? And I know for a fact what we don't think that politics should be is four years of campaigning and bickering from these two different sides that are really pretty closely related when you think about it from the perspective of like global capital, right? Um, like I saw someone tweet something the other day that was like, what America needs is a center-right party, not like some extremist right-wing. And then someone retweeted, I think it was Chica Marx, which is Mackenzie Wark. I think she said, uh, "Hun, that's the Democrats. <laughs> yeah, that's the Democrats. <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, that's great. That's a great freaking answer, you know? Um, and that's exactly right, you know? So there, I think, what is it? Is it Tariq Ali that, that writes the uh, the extreme center? Um, so, you know, there is, I think that the, this, this podcast is largely, in, at least from this angle, is motivated by a dissatisfaction with what's on offer, but then also a profound desire to seek and to stimulate and to work through and then to try to provide something positive that we can work towards for ourselves um, in our own lives and our own work with each other as friends and then as we open that up to our listeners for something that's better that we can all work towards together and helping us figure out how to kind of navigate the stormy seas of our dissatisfaction as we aim towards maybe a, a, an endlessly receding horizon of 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 satisfaction. But I think that's the idea. And I just am so fucking bored with popular politics. I I tune in and I listen to catch the snippets because I want to know the state of things. But I've been pretty good over the past, especially I'd say over the past four or five years of, of not giving myself over too much to the affect and the ups and downs and the daily to, uh, of the daily news cycle. You know, um, like I've got a couple of YouTube channels that I turn to that are, um, you know, like uh, like I I don't know why I do it, but I still tune into the Young Turks, even though I can't stand sometimes their perspective. <laughs> but at least at least I know where they're coming from, you know. But but um, but I just I, I get really annoyed by how they're just. I get you know what I get annoyed by. I get annoyed by there's a sort of like smugness about them. That um, and and I really get annoyed by their titles of their YouTube channels because it's always playing into that sensationalist YouTube algorithmic game where it's like so and so rips this person, so and so burns this person. I'm like, guys, can you please stop, man? Like, yeah, they're just... they're they're kind of insufferable for being right as often as they probably are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I, you know, I sometimes I'll tune into the rising on the hill with uh, Crystal, Crystal Ball and uh, and Sagar. I, mm-hmm. you know, I you can get good snippets from them. And um, do you listen to Dunn Hedwood's show at all? Uh, yeah, I used to. I used to. Um, I just I, I haven't been into podcasts lately, so uh-huh. I just haven't tuned in. But yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah. His, and I follow yeah, him on tw- I follow him on show, Twitter. Yeah, I think on Twitter he can be kind of a spitfire. Uh, which is fun, but um, his show yes. I think is actually the single best source of um, news from a leftist source, just in terms of erudition, uh, expertise. He constantly brings on uh, academic experts in every field, and he yes. himself has a really um, a wide breadth of knowledge in everything from politics to um, economics and uh, philosophy, sociology, and etc. So yeah, I mean it. He, he, you only get you know one hour a week or so, but if you wanted a, one source to rely on, I can't think of a better one. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I mean, there's a bunch of podcasts out there. You know, there's like The Dig, which is like Jacobin's thing, which can be good to tune into. Mm-hmm. It's good to have a variety of sources, right? So you've got yeah. The Dig, and, and then you've got Richard Wolff's, uh, his economics podcast that is really good if you're like, okay, what's going on with, you know, um, like union struggles and, and things like that. And then he's just such a fucking, like, I often wonder, I'm like, it's he's such an excellent educator, you know? Like, I'm I'm not an economist, so I don't know about like how excellent he is as an economist in the academic sense. But I don't really give a shit. As an educator, my God, the way that he's able to take complex economic jargon and really distill it for a working class audience is really fantastic. So if you're looking for that, like if you're like I don't understand this economic shit, um, Prof. Richard Wolf's podcast is fantastic. Um, so there are like bright spots out there that can help us navigate the dissatisfying seas of popular politics but generally i've been pretty good at not just like immersing myself in that world and i think it's because it's not politics with a capital p it's not it's mm-hmm. it's for the most part right it's um especially now it's a mediatized uh pageant show that is really more concerned with um i would say producing and controlling flows of affect right? Flows of emotion. Um, Not necessarily conscious emotion, but there's something about the mediatized form of popular politics today, especially in America. I mean, I I do see it in the UK too. I can't speak about um, non-English speaking countries because I don't pay attention to them as much, but definitely in the UK, it's it's starting to become more of a thing, but 100% in the United States, like it's gone, right? Like, like I was just talking with my housemate the other day. He's he's French, and we were talking about the show Mad Money, you know, the Jim Cramer show. And obviously, that's not a politics show. It's more about like investing and stuff like that. But still, the idea was is he's like that show would never be on mainstream TV in France. It'd be on like one of those community channels, and they'd be <laughs> like, "Oh, look at this wild guy," you know. So in my mind, I'm thinking it would be on the same channel as like fucking I don't know. Uh, What's his name? Bob Ross painting, you know, funny paintings <laughs> and like fucking Bill Nye the Science Guy or something. And then you'd have, oh, here's Jim Cramer with his like suspenders and his big button that he smacks, you know, what's you know that sell, sell, sell that, or buy, buy, buy or whatever. What is what's it? That, what's that channel that all like the worst NCAA tournament games are on that everyone has to figure out which channel it is for like one week every year? Oh, I don't even know. Does it have a funky name or is it like yeah, ESPN I, I, Oh, yeah. I think, I, think it, I think it's like True TV or something. Oh, yeah. 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 Every, and then, every year you see that in your internet browser like what the fuck is true tv for combat sports they have DAZN now <laughs> yeah so there's yeah like you would think that it'd be some sort of like privately i mean it is you know a private a, a, a privately funded show but that it'd be on like some like minor channel like if you have satellite tv it'd be number 745 or something like that you know Um, But no, it's not. It's mainstream, mainstream TV. It's part of the mainstream news source that's being fed. And I don't know, man, I just, I'm fundamentally, like, without, without trying to be overly dramatic, like, it's more than just, it's more than just like a dramatized emotion that is driving my frustration. It's like a mood in the ontological sense, you know, like, I am fundamentally (laughs) dispositionally dissatisfied with that to the point where I actually think not not no no I don't actually think like I'm going to say that like oh like this is a revelatory thing no no this is a fact it is damaging to popular political discourse like it simply is it is a fact 
Like, I just... This totally anecdotal, but you cannot convince me to the contrary, right? It is a fucking fact that the 24-hour news cycle, the way that, quote, popular politics is done from campaigning that lasts for four fucking years to, you know, um, the kind of, like, political gamesmanship that people, you know, take and uh, do within, like, Congress itself to um, how it's spun in the media to um, the, the kind of, like, Twitter uh, fucking blue checks that are disseminating information, for the most part, I'm going to say that it is all just, in the strict sense of the term, nonsense. And um, <laughs> and so and it, it just fucking drives me crazy. And we're at the zenith now of the last, the latest election cycle that I feel like has been ongoing since 2000. 2000. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and maybe it's always been this way. You know, maybe maybe it's always been this way, and I just, you know, only came of age from, like, 2000 onward in, in a kind of political sense when I was a teenager, you know? So maybe that's, maybe that's, maybe it's always been this way, and um, and this is just me kind of coming to an awareness of this in, in my own journey, but um, yeah, man, I, I'm, and, and so that really makes me happy that we have this outlet, and that I hope people get what we're doing here. It's, we're not ignoring politics and that's not why we don't do like election specials and talk about polling i mean one that's not our forte but more importantly i think the reason it's also not our forte is because we've never been drawn to that because we've always aimed for something more that we would see as something better you know and uh so yeah that's my shitty minute yeah dude i think that's well said and i share that sentiment entirely i I think that uh when you politically or philosophically come of age reading plato's republic and you see preeminent figures discussing what justice consists in, right? And idealizing um, the perfect just society. And you see the philosophical trajectory that falls from that, even in its worst guises, like, you know, a Hobbes Leviathan or whatever. And you see um, some attempts to understand the deep structures of society and attempt to resolve the fundamental contradictions of it. And you think this is what capital P politics should be about, right? And of course, there's absolutely nothing in politics that is that. And yeah. so it's it's dispiriting. Um, it, it seems like there's a an attempt to cover over and in, in one sense sort of censure those that very topic of discussion, but also just to kind of laugh it off as if, you know, who could ever actually discuss those things, right? It's mm-hmm. almost a, um, yeah, it's deeply kind of ironic in that sense. Yeah, it's um, that kind of like real, real politic kind of shit, you know, like, nah, man, we gotta, we can't be, we can't be messing with that crap, you know, we got shit to do. Yeah. And of course that shit to do is always incredibly destructive and nonsensical exactly. and never even achieves the very modest goals with which it sets it for itself. So, um, yeah, the whole thing's uh, bullshit. And the hardest thing really is just to not be cynical about the whole thing. Right. Um, Yes. I mean, it's not a really, really neither here nor there, but I think a big part of the whole, uh, you know, I think a lot of people that don't want to vote for Biden um, who share our politics or something similar to our politics do so because they want to be strategic and they want in some sense to hold the Democrats accountable for chicanery um, against Bernie and the progressive movement within the left and, and various other things. But there's also a, a, a segment that just doesn't want to vote for someone they don't like. 
And I think part of that comes from an expectation that there's that the politics in the U.S. should be something different than it is, which I think is a very good disposition to have. But I also think that it's um, the the problem is much more deeply structural than whether you're going to vote for Biden or not. Voting for Biden or not should just be something you do on a Tuesday and forget about. Um, ultimately, there's there's much bigger fish to fry when it comes to what has to happen politically in this country because the trajectory is not a good one. I think we can share that yeah. sentiment. Yeah. Yep, definitely, man. So, and honestly, that kind of leads into the main segment with this essay by Graeber, who I think, you know, provides a really nice, simple analysis of, um, and a sort of, let's say, reframing of America that uh, kind of gets at what might be some of these normative factors that are driving a sort of certain political orientations and how Democrats, progressives, quote leftists, how they oftentimes misdiagnose, misunderstand um, the very country that they're purportedly speaking for, you know, um, and their constituents and, and why that leads to certain tensions. So let's jump into the main segment. Yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. So David Graeber, I mean, we could probably spend a couple of minutes talking about the person before we get into this essay. Yeah, I give him that. This is in one sense, um, what do you call it, like an honorarium? Is that a term? Or am I making that up on the spot? I like it. Yeah, I'm going to use it. Um, so David Graeber uh, was an anthropologist, also known as a committed anarchist, dabbled as a sort of public intellectual, and I think, honestly, a kind of moral philosopher um, mm. as well. We'll get into that, I think, in this essay especially. And he's famous for a number of reasons in the public sphere. He was, I believe, at Yale, right, as a professor when he was... Correct. Was he his, not given tenure or removed from tenure track? I don't remember the details. Do you know? Yeah, he, he got left? fucked. Yeah, he was not given tenure from what I understand. So he was yeah. tenure track and then he didn't succeed in, in getting tenure? Okay. And, um, and there's there's a bunch of reasons or theories as to why it was never explicitly stated, but it seems pretty clear that the reason was because of his sort of political um, and outspoken positions, which he never, you know, he never wavered from his entire life. He never pulled punches. He never tried to please the sort of bureaucratic elites at all. And um, so that's what a lot of the speculation supposes. Of course, Yale would never admit that, but it does seem to be the case. Yeah, if anyone didn't give a fuck, David Graeber didn't give a fuck. Um, <laughs> yeah. We can title the episode, David Graeber didn't give a fuck. Um, hmm. Yeah, and so he was um, known for that, and I think even more in the public sphere, known for sort of in, 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 a, in an important way um, setting off Occupy Wall Street and helping to organize it in the first place. Back in, what was that, 2011? Hmm. Um, uh, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so uh, he was a big part of that and various other um, protest and Occupy efforts. I think after he left Yale, he went to England, right? And at some point taught at uh, the London School of Economics. So he certainly didn't lack for uh, academic appointments after leaving the States. Although he's always, I think, really been an American public intellectual, um, as much as we've had to share him with the British, which is unfair, right? That's like, 
It's like if LeBron James was like, you know what? I'm kind of done with the NBA. I'm going to go play in China, right? And just score a thousand points a game. <laughs> That's just not fair, man. Like he deserves better than that. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you kind of see him as a paradigm public intellectual. I think that's a term that's thrown around a lot, but doesn't apply in a lot of cases where people think that it applies. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you know, Wisecrack, we just released a video on this where we make a distinction between a public intellectual and a thought leader, right? And it's a pretty interesting little video. And, um, you know, the, the video concentrates on, and I can't remember her name, but it's a woman who popularized the power pose, right? Like she was a proper academic psychologist and she wrote a paper on like how adjusting your body language actually has an effect on your mood and your mentality. And it was about like, you know, like, oh, if you're feeling a a lack of confidence, sit up straight, sit tall or something like that and breathe deeply and that'll actually affect your mood. Whereas if you like slump over and you hunch down, that can actually kind of make you more downtrodden. And she talked about the power pose and it's kind of silly when you think about it, but it's like, you know, kind of like Peter Pan. Didn't it get debunked though, like through failed replication or something? I don't know, but... I I think I remember that. (laughs) It may have. And I can't remember her name, but her TED Talk went like... She got invited to do a TED Talk, and it's been viewed by like millions, like millions and millions. And now she's become like a celebrity, and she's become what we termed in the video uh, a thought leader, right? Rather than a public intellectual. And they kind of talk about the distinction. And... um, in a very simple way, you could say that thought leaders are kind of driven by a sort of more commercial spirit. Like now, her work, like she's written books now on the power pose, and she's asked to interview about the power pose. And you sort of get caught up in this perpetual motion machine of kind of just defending and then um, sort of like uh, fortifying your own position rather than really critically doing the work that supposedly. Um, academics are supposed to do, right? Whereas I think a public intellectual definitely has that more critical, um, uh, a more challenging, maybe even we would say a transgressive orientation within the world that they are, you know, kind of oriented. And um, I think that Graeber definitely fits that. He's absolutely critical, absolutely transgressive, and he isn't somebody... Even though he's, he's written a couple of popular books, you know, Debt is at least relatively popular. And Bullshit Jobs is definitely a popular book, right? It's something that a lot of people read. So he definitely was um, somebody who had a popular footprint, but he never compromised on anything for commercial success or he never compromised for celebrity status or to, you know, go on the Joe Rogan podcast or to be on a TED Talk. Even though I did hear once that Duncan Trussell... Um, actually did suggest to Joe Rogan that he should have David Graeber on. And I actually really thought it was a good idea. And it made me sad that that never happened. Um, I would have listened to that. (laughs) I would have loved to have, I would have loved to have heard David Graeber talk with Joe Rogan. I think Joe would have actually really enjoyed the conversation and it would have been really good for the millions of people that listen to Rogan's podcast. So, but I do think he's a public intellectual. I think we have a few, um, but I don't think I don't think there are many, I think, and it's partly because of that commercial pressure, which isn't just simply monetary, but it's also cultural capital, right? Social capital that you're trying to accumulate or that you do accumulate by being somebody who gets invited to do interviews on radio shows. And then, of course, you do get paid for the interviews that you do on like news stations. And when you do a TED Talk, you get paid shitloads of money. So I think that's the distinction. And I think Graeber definitely kind of falls to the other side of the divide. He is a public intellectual. 
Yeah, it seems like there's several skills that you need to be an effective public intellectual, and not just like technical skills, but also moral skills um, or virtues then. And, mm. you know, most people just aren't going to have all of these. They're not going to, like one of them would be just a, you know, pedagogical ability, right? You need right. that to be able to take complex materials that you work on in an academic setting not only that you can explain to students who are already there and who are already prepared to inculcate these concepts, but to people who don't know anything about it at all, right? And lots of people either just can't do that or they fall too much on the extreme of making the concepts so loose that they basically have no meaning. And the TED Talk's the kind of right is, is, is the um, epitome of that, right? Because oftentimes the TED Talk takes a thing that might be an important discovery and isolates it so much from anything that matters that it's it's basically just a 15-minute infomercial. Um, not always, but oftentimes. And Graeber definitely has that, uh, that skip, pedagogical skill. But he also has the skill or the virtue of um, being able to connect complex academic intellectual ideas to practical concerns, right? Connecting... 5,000 years of the history of, of debt relations in various societies to what's happening right now and what our world could look like and how it could be better. And do That's that right. in the most perspicacious way anybody has ever done that, right? Mm. Um and that's, that's exactly why people reacted to that book the way that they did. When you think about it, and you're like an anthropologist wrote a book on five thousand years in the history of debt hmm. in various societies. Like that sounds like the most boring shit ever, right? But it became like an international and political phenomenon, right? Yeah. Um, bullshit jobs is a little bit more obvious because it gets at like an anger that people have about their lives. And, and, in, <laughs> and in a way that, you know, like everybody knows it, like everybody knows that the vast majority of jobs um, that exist in uh, neoliberal capitalist societies have no meaning and no contribution towards the greater good or anything worthy and noble. Everybody knows this. But he says it and puts it in a way that's like, wow, that actually matters. Like, it's not just that everyone knows it, but that's like, that's important. That really matters that that's the case, right? This helps explain why everyone feels shitty all the time <laughs> about themselves mm. and about the society they live in. Um, so he connects these things to practicality in a way that just, I mean, even, even in Noam Chomsky, who's like the paradigm American public intellectual of the latter half of the 20th century, right? Um, and absolutely should be esteemed for the role he's played or for playing that role, especially when it comes to media criticism, right? Um, that said, I don't even think Chomsky quite had that ability to the extent that, that Graeber did. And it's so sad that we're not going to be able to have um, the second half of his life, really, or the majority of the second half of his life to, to do mm. that, especially as you know the movements that he helped start are still around and are stronger than they were when he helped start them. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to think that the Bernie Sanders movement, which a lot of us talk about as kind of coming out of nowhere in 2015, right? It's hard to think that that would have happened if not um, for Graeber and for Occupy Wall Street, which itself in many ways kind of came out of nowhere. Um, yeah. So all that, not to throw hagiography on them, but just to say that uh, hmm. when, when we talk about Graeber being a public intellectual, it's not just like he's, you know, one amongst amongst many. He was um he was a, a really he's a giant. Yeah. He's you know, when we say standing on the shoulders of giants, 
I think we literally, without rhetorical infusion, we can place him as being one of those giants upon whom upon whose shoulders we're standing. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, I do. I, I agree. I do think so. Um, so when we talked about wanting to do a, a sort of in memoriam for Graber, you immediately got excited about this essay. So um, why don't you take us through kind of why you like this essay and then maybe the, the broad strokes of the argument and, uh, and then we can get kind of talking about the substance of it. Yeah, so again, the essay is titled Army of Altruists on the Alienated Right to Do Good. And I think this essay really captures that sense about that I just spoke about um, debt for 5,000 years as in addition to being obviously a work of anthropology, it certainly wasn't a phenomenon simply as a work of anthropology. It wasn't like mm-hmm. this reanimates uh, and reconstitutes our understanding of, you know, the economic economics in past generations and in past societies. It did that to a certain extent, right, in sort of reconfiguring and criticizing the way that especially economics textbooks um, give their just-so stories about how money was created as an invention, right? And that was the yeah. assumption that... And the barter, barter myth and, yeah. Yeah, the barter myth that uh, um, pre-modern societies generally uh, were um, constituted by economies built around barter and then money came as a more efficient way of doing that. And so that's what it, right. uh, how money was created as an invention to replace uh, a, a less efficient um, barter system. And he criticized that and um, just from an empirical perspective showing that that wasn't the case and exposing that as a just-so story that justifies... A certain conception of money, which itself is incorrect, and so mm. yeah, that there's a sort of you know anthropological um, innovation there, right? But really, that was even itself in service of what I think is the most important um, part of that book, and is featured prominently in this essay, and that's really doing. I mean, I guess you could call it like moral anthropology, right? Mm. Not just a study of the sort of economic relations between persons in past societies, and Graeber was very, I think, explicit about this, but the actual how those constituted moral relations amongst people, that debt relations were part of the moral relations of people in the society, um, and trying to bring that up to the fore and not be afraid of the fact that that's, in some sense, not an anthropologist's job necessarily, right? An anthropologist might talk about the moral conceptions in a society, right? But certainly is not sort of used to um, taking those those notions and using them as a critical tool against contemporary society. And Graeber was fine with doing that, and I think should be applauded for. Yeah, and if that. I can if I can just put in a little insert just before I forget, for people who are interested um, in Graeber's work too, there's an early work that he wrote in like 2003 or something like that. Um, that's called Towards an Anthropological Theory of Value, mm-hmm. which I think it, it's a very sort of, in a way it's a little drier than, I mean, Debt is a long book, but it's not dry, and Bullshit Jobs is not dry. This book is a little bit drier because it's much more of like a technical anthropological investigation and survey of various different theories of value from within the anthropological discipline. But it, it also ends on a very sort of like, it still has his rhetor- rhetorical flourishes throughout, which is great. And it ends on kind of like high note of like this I like how you called it a moral anthropology but I would really check out th- that that book for people interested in exploring him further it's one of the ones that people they don't really sing the praises of as much but it's the one that actually set me on the trajectory that I am now no lie I know where I was when I was reading it I remember working through it and I read that and uh, Foucault's lectures on biopolitics and it completely kind of changed the explicit focus of my research so um 
it's kind of formed a lot of the foundations for how I think about value, and it's part of the reason why I'm critical of Marxism. Not that I still don't identify in some ways within the Marxian legacy, but it's precisely on this notion of value and the explicit concern with moral anthropology that Graeber kind of, um, I think, bequeathed to me that really kind of um, makes me more philosophical in my approach rather than just extremely or explicitly like political economic. And so um, I just wanted to recommend that because I think it, it really lays a really good foundation for understanding, okay, so what are anthropological theories of value? How does anthropology understand gift economies, exchange, you know, and do we still see those things existing today? And Graeber, I think, as he clearly even says at one point in this article, would say that the notion of gift exchange is still something that is replete even in our sort of more abstract monetary um, transactions. So I just wanted to, to mention that real quick. Yeah, I would love to read that um, essay with you at some point. That would be fun just to get your perspective on it and sort of uh, elucidate how it affected your own trajectory. So we should put that on the schedule for some time. Yeah, let's do it. I'd actually love to revisit it. Yeah, that'd be great. So yeah, let's get into the meat, the meat of the essay. Yeah, so there's here's what I think is kind of um, a thesis statement in the form of a question that happens in the beginning of the essay. Uh, Graeber starts by, I, I believe this text, uh, this essay was written in 2007, the beginning of the year. So right. it was right after the uh, midterms in 2006, right? And it starts with a, um, I, I don't remember this at all. Tell me if you remember it, but uh, some quote from John Kerry. Yeah, I did not. Said, I did not remember it. Yeah. Yeah. So Kerry had said something like, uh, um, make the most of whatever education you have, because if you don't, you'll end up in Iraq, right? <laughs> Um, and McCain came out and like did his, you know, whiny Republican thing, which I mean, can, the, the biggest thing I got from reading this essay now is that the Republicans are the same <laughs> in yes. 2007 as they are now that the whole Trump thing didn't really change. It was always this way. We just maybe weren't as aware of it. Um, yes. But the whole, yeah, the whole um, whiny demeanor is exactly the same in Marco Rubio uh, at all. Uh, as it was for the leader of the party uh, back 15 years ago or whatever. Whining at, and bad faith, yeah. Yeah, and saying that it's unpatriotic and blah, blah, blah. And even yeah. though even though Kerry, I don't think, met, obviously didn't mean it the way that um, Republicans try to cast it, but even if he did, it was still true. <laughs> um, and so Graybridge kind of uses that to introduce this idea, and he goes back to it about the as the, the military is being kind of an, an employer of last resort. And what does that say about, I mean, why would someone go into the military anyway? And he doesn't think that the fact that leftists, especially liberals also don't really understand that explains something about their ignorance of what the American project even is in the first place. Right. Um, but the thesis, I think, or the main question that he wants to address is when he says, is it possible that America is actually a nation of frustrated altruists? And the question he's saying there is he's um, getting to this idea that and he, he produces an anecdote here about um, uh, people who had enlisted and, and, and um, were in the Iraqi occupation at some point in order to restore relations with locals began this project of going out and like, what were they doing? Working in, in mobile hospitals and um, I can't remember what else, like cutting people's hair and just doing like basic service for people yeah. in Iraq. And apparently it was incredibly popular um, with the soldiers. 
to this work and that they would respond to it with this is exactly what we've wanted to do we wanted to help mm. these people rebuild their country um, and do good for them and, and help people in general who need it and that leads graber to think about the fact that when leftists and, and liberals criticize military occupation they don't want to talk about this kind of factor because it doesn't feed into whatever narrative they're going to have right um, and it also seems like in some way it's celebrating military occupation, which of course we don't want to do, right? Never should have been in Iraq in the first place, even if it, there was some times when some people got some nice haircuts or got some good vaccines or whatever. Um, but he thinks this kind of anecdote and this phenomenon of it being very popular with soldiers is a really important point because this is something about what they thought they were doing there in the first place. Why would they engage in this project? And that it's not the kind of blind patriotism that McCain's pointing to, but instead is some fundamental um, guiding life plan or project and desire to do something noble and to help people. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's also telling too when he talks about how the military institution is aware of this and they continue to offer – the, these outreach programs precisely because they they know that that's going to increase the possibility of reenlistment, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there, there's a sense that the in, they know very well that they're able to stimulate, we might say, positive attachments or positive investment from the, um, the those who enlist by giving them this access to doing good, by giving them opportunities to be altruists, to serve a, quote, larger goal, Right to sort of like be a manifestation of the supposed idea that the United States is a shining city on a hill sort of thing, right? That they can embody this logic in a very practical way in their military endeavors. Yeah, and this is, I think, one of Graeber's great strengths, and I think it's actually a really important um, ethical point from a sort of moral philosophical perspective is it's incredibly important when someone is doing something that we judge to be wrong or in some sense just given a negative balance, right, in our judgment, to mm. understand what that person, assuming it's not a pathological, pathologically motivated action, what they think is good in it, right? What's the good thing that they're recognizing in it, even if they're obscuring everything else about it that's bad and wrong? What are they finding to be good in it? Not in order to justify it, right? We don't want to justify the bad thing, obviously, but to understand it, right? And it's only mm. when you do that that you can ever communicate with that person, right? Now, if it's pathological, it's a different story, and maybe you can't. Uh, I'm not going to try to convince Trump that he's wrong about the way he sees the world, right? <laughs> um, but for his voters, I do. For the vast majority of them, I do. I want to win them over, right? Uh, I want them to realize that they also need health care. <laughs> um, mm. And so I think being able to take this kind of anecdote and while recognizing that this is used for incredibly nefarious purposes by the military itself, right, um, right. It speaks to something that's important and good about the way the soldiers see it. Um, and that, you know, in addition to the fact that they're also frustrated by the fact that uh, their, um, their good motives and intentions are often used in these nefarious ways. So that's just an example of the kind of thing that leftists seem kind of afraid to do, right? You know, people in the military have to be jingoistic MAGA chud morons um, who just want to shoot brown people. Um, and that's just the whole thing, right? Because that's how it's used, right? 
Mm. We don't have to do that. We can we can explain how the structural forces at play produce those ends while also recognizing that there's something of value in the way that the participants are seeing this and we can reach them using that. If we mm. can't do that, we're not going we're never going to win. <laughs> the game's over. If that's the case, right? Cuz not everyone's just going to automatically become uh, a Marxist. That's just not going to happen, right? <laughs> um, they're not all going to love listening to avant-garde music and um you know, drink uh, IPAs and shit like that, and all the, all the cultural shit that gets everyone, you know, want to be a leftist in the first place. <laughs> right. Although so, I would really like that. I, I do desire that future where everybody is doing that. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I'm, uh, I've given up the ghost. It's not going to happen, um, <laughs> which is fine because I hate some of that shit too. Uh, mm. I want to mm. listen to like uh, 80s thrash metal and, you know, deal with it. You know, you know what this really made me think about, and I know we've talked about this a lot, but this was just a, another sort of reinforcing of this um, developing idea that that I have that we've treated quite a bit, is that what Graeber is talking about is that we might say the right is better at stimulating uh, a positive conception of freedom, right? And I don't remember if it was the last episode or the episode before, but we talked about like kind of like stimulating the desire for investment. Do you remember talking about that? I can't remember in what context we were talking about. Yeah, it, I don't remember the context. Yeah, but it definitely seems that that by um, not by using like the blind patriotism of uh, that's just meant as a sort of like bludgeon, but I talked about previously this series of essays that Sartre writes when he comes to America in the 1940s and he's kind of amazed at the positive liberties, right? He doesn't use that phrasing, but he's amazed at this this investment that people have towards being um, supportive nationally, nationwide for the country, for the cause of the country. Whereas for him, conceptions of freedom are more the negative conceptions, right? That very sort of... Um, French revolt, like free from monarchy, free from oppression, free from religion type of mentality. And there does seem to be something that the right is very good at. And and maybe it's because they come out of a more explicitly Christian religious tradition. Maybe they just understand how to stimulate and how to court, like seduce people towards um, images, right? Towards like projected images. Um, you know, in a psycholytic, psychoanalytic sense, we could say that they're very good at sort of stimulating desire by kind of projecting fantasies, you know, um, objects objects that will cause desire, objects that are supposedly going to produce desire, the objet in Lacanian terms. Um, maybe they're just really good at wielding that, but it's I don't think it's necessarily something that's like a, a subjective conscious decision to be like, ah, let's do it. Sometimes it could be political manufacture, but I think it also just comes and it flows out of a particular kind of conservative orientation that they tend to, whether it be nostalgia or whether it be some uh, kind of vision of the of the good that they have for the future, um, you know, we got to spread democracy worldwide. We got to create a world, you know, that's made in the image of the Washington consensus. Um, we've got to go back to the roots when America really was this good moral 
um, you know, uh, family values, traditional values, uh, had, a, had a dominant position in the world. You know, we got to go back to that. You see it in the UK with um, some, a lot of the Brexit votes that drove like this desire, this clamoring for the British Empire. You get this with like John Milbank and radical orthodoxy that they want to regain Christendom, right? There's something about this sort of positive notion of the good that really seduces or that courts the investment of the the individual um, conservative individuals that really helps them navigate this tension that Graeber draws between egoism and altruism. And, and I think that that's really interesting. And it isn't viewed as, from that perspective as being contradictory, right? Like there is a sense in which is it is it is it Bishop Butler, Joseph Butler, that writes about how um, individual satisfaction is not at odds with um, altruism? Is that Rever- not, re- not Bishop, Reverend, Reverend Butler? I think it's Joseph Butler. Um, but, you know, he writes about how, you know, like pursuing self-interest is not at odds with selflessness, with altruism. And I think that there's something that Graeber is drawing on here that demonstrates that um, – that the sort of the, the the Republican Party, the right wing in the United States, that's characterized by this duality of egoism and altruism between libertarianism and patriotism or nationalism and civic virtue, that it's not a contradiction in the strict logical sense, but rather it's um, it's a sort of tension that is important to understand because it really demonstrates their vitality as a political apparatus, you know, and and the vitality of that conservative orientation in being able to seduce and court more investment from people. Yeah, which, I mean, I think that's well said, and that's a theoretical strength of the right, I think, because that's, I think, a fundamentally rational and human way to approach thinking about your society, right? What would a good society look like? These kind of questions we're talking about during the shitty minute about capital P politics, right? Um liberals won't give a shit about doing the republic the project of the republic right you can't do that they have this like i think fundamentally mistaken view of like a kind of rawlsian liberal democracy where conceptions of the good are fundamentally alien to each other and so they can't be reconciled so we have to um create a just society uh with those being behind a veil of ignorance right now i think it's a, a misunderstanding of, of Rawls. we don't think of that right now um but that's sort of how liberals tend to see um, this idea of having a conception of the good that's shared amongst people in a society and that governs and regulates what they think of as being a good society, it's scary because in the conservative's hand, in the right's hands, it is scary because those are never actually conceptions of the good which involve everybody, right? Um, they always involve mm-hmm. exclusion and violence and exploitation and every other negative thing you could think of, right? But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean but having a conception of the good that is shared amongst people is the problem. No, it's the content of that conception of the good that the right has that's the problem, not having a conception of the good in general. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I think that, uh, and this gets to the alienated right to do good, um, good, which is the subtitle of the essay, right, is people need to have this as human beings, as persons. They need to have this sense that what they're doing in their life is is good. And liberals, and I think leftists too, in large degree, um, don't understand that. They want to restrict that. They want to remove that from discussion. That's a private thing that you do on your own time and you don't inflict that on anybody else. And that's that sense of negative liberty um, becoming exhaustive of liberty, right? Where it's only freedom from and never freedom to. 
anything. Mm. And that's that's never going to constitute a, a truly holistic form of human life and social life that's needed um, to make a politics for all. And so, yeah, I think that's exactly why the right has success, even when its conception of the good is clearly not going to be favorable to all. It at least has one, right? It's just a, I would rather have none than have a terrible one, right? <laughs> I agree with mm. that. That's why I'll still vote for Biden over Trump, right? Um, right. But uh, but that that doesn't mean that no, we can't have a, a, um, a democratic and egalitarian conception of the good that can involve everybody. Hmm. There's there's another layer here that I was thinking about when I was reading to kind of just um, abstract a little bit away from the essay. And so just bear with me, and I and I hope I can piece this together. But so I was thinking about this binary that he has between egoism and altruism, right? Hmm. And then he kind of maps that onto this sort of tension between the impulse within the Republican Party towards libertarianism. And also towards what we might call civic virtue or patriotism, nationalism, right? I'm going to use civic virtue just because I kind of I kind of prefer that term. Um, but that there's something there's some concern for a civic uh, a civic virtue, a civic good. We might then think about libertarianism in terms of relation to uh, prices and the market, right? That that's where the possibilities for freedom. Um, where the true expression of the libertarian ideal is carried out. It's in the freedom of the market mechanisms via the pricing process to uh, flow without interference from institutions, bureaucracy, etc. That's the ideal, right? That's reading some Corey Robin right there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then on the other side of that, uh, with that, that... attaches to civic virtue is you have a system of values and norms, explicitly so, right? So now I'm thinking about this, and then I'm also now thinking about, oh, this is really interesting. There's a scholar by the name of John Roth who has written a book called Abstract Market Theory, and he is very indebted to the philosophy of Gilles Deleuze. He's a Deleuze scholar amongst others, Um, but one of the things he talks about is how the axiom of price is that it basically just moves up and down, right? That's that. But in the axiom of price, there are no values and norms. That's the other side of the coin, right? Values and norms are kind of separate. So you can't conflate price with value for Roth, right? And he's drawing a lot on a lot of Deleuze's work here and Deleuze and Guattari's work here. But so then it's making me think that, okay, so what we have with the libertarian impulse in its fidelity to the price movement of the market, is you have an act of deterritorialization. By the price movement, the axiom of moving up and down, it is this sort of, if you will, non-normative flow of um, this axiomatic price movements, right, of up, ups and downs. Now, on the other side of that, you then have an act of re-territorialization. So there's the deterritorialization of uh, pricing in markets, and then you have re-territorialization that takes place through values and norms. Now, it might also, you could probably also speak about re-territorialization in terms of um, kind of the abstract mechanism of like capital power through the pricing process, but I think that still relates to norms and values here. So this is why I think we can actually distinguish deterritorialization from re-territorialization along these lines of this libertarian impulse being precisely concerned with a deterritorializing focus on the pricing process of the markets with the re-territorializing process relating to civic virtue in the kind of like reinstitution of values and norms that are wielded by those with power, capital power, institutional power, cultural power, political power, etc. And then what this makes me think of is that why the Republican Party has success is precisely because of this activity of creative destruction, 
right? Where this act of deterritorialization through their fidelity to the libertarian principles of the market then requires some sort of mitigation or let's say risk management or securitization through the reinstitution of values and norms. And what this does is it creates a sort of, I just wrote this down, a kind of pathological reliance on that dual process, right? And there's this, therefore, a sort of like addiction to what we might consider a type of abusive behavior, a type of system that creates the problems but then has the solutions. It's pharmacological, right? It's a cure that is also the poison or a poison that is also the cure. And I think that's what I was thinking a lot of as I was reading this. And that's something that is libidinally powerful and potent because it's able to induce a type of complicity it's able to induce piety. It's able to seduce a sort of um, deeper libidinal investment into that system precisely because um, it becomes not only the cure, but it also becomes the kind of like uh, the thing that disrupts the cure that then provides the only solution for that pathology. And so I think that's something that we can think about that is so potent about the right's ability to maintain itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think Graeber says basically in his own terms um, what you were saying right there about the pharmacological aspect. I thought uh, so too. I was just, I just didn't know if I was being too, like, in into my own reading, you know, like if I was being too forceful. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Well, yeah, here's Graeber. Uh, he says, one might say that the right's approach is to release the dogs of the market, throwing all traditional verities into disarray, and then, in this tumult of insecurity, offer themselves up as the last bastion of order and hierarchy, the stalwart defenders of the authority of churches and fathers against the barbarians yes. they have themselves unleashed. Yeah, it's, it, 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 it introduces both the egoism and the altruism um, as sort of the, uh, the necessity which produces the problem and then we're going to give you the cure for it at the end. But the whole thing is, of course, pathological and terrible for us. And so while it is at the very least a conception of the good, it is a terrible one, which is destructive <laughs> towards human being and society. Um, but yeah, it, and it, it revels least, and it revels it is at in least that an ethos. Say what you will about the tenets of yeah. national socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. Yeah, that's the thing, right? It, it absolutely is an ethos. And then here's the question: So, like, what the fuck is the ethos? The alternative, like, what is the left's ethos? And I don't mean this in like. The radical left, Marx, communism, but in this essay, Graeber is writing about like the American left, right? <laughs> and what is their ethos? Do they even have a fucking vision? No, they don't, right? And that's build back great. better. What the fuck <laughs> is build back better? Like, what is Biden? That's why Biden. That's why Clinton. What? Like, we're gonna go back to normal? That's what everyone keeps saying. Politics as normal. Is that the ethos that you're trying to incite passions for? That's not the shit that makes people cry and come out to the streets and canvas. It's when Bernie says, "Hey, will you sacrifice yourself for the person next to you?" It's when he says, "Not me, us." It's when Killer Mike has that amazing fucking campaign video that I just put out on Twitter the other day because I was like, "If you want to have a cry, check this out," because it makes me cry because it makes me think of what could have been. But when he says, now is the time, he's like, you know, there's more of us. Th that's it. It's, it's about us. That's an ethos. What the fuck is the democratic ethos? Yeah, there isn't one. And that's why I think that you, <laughs> you mentioned the, the kind of famous Bernie speech where he talks about, look at the person next to you and can you sacrifice not only for yourself, but for them as well. That was such a scandalous thing to say, precisely because it cuts against um, this sort of, this sort of like 
egoistic necessity that's supposed to Dude, be at the heart of politics. I had friends messaging me from around the world, like non-Americans, asking me, like, oh my god, did you hear this? And then they were asking me, th- there was literally a conversation point from about a dozen friends, would you do that? And it, the fact that they even asked me, like, would you sacrifice yourself for your neighbor? Now, me coming out of the Christian background, my initial impulse is like, of course, what are you talking about? Come on. <laughs> That's just what we do, you know? But, you take it um, across. You do it. Yeah, come on. Of course. Duh. Like, I'm, I was surprised <laughs> that people were so scandalized by it. But it was scandalous. It was. And it is. Yeah, and I think that what Graeber's trying to do here is precisely to say, hey, we can see how destructive the ethos of the right that we're criticizing is, right? And we can see it. And the fact that it alienates our necessary and internal desire to do something noble and good, and it makes us feel the way like like these guys in the army in Iraq do, um, that should be a clue to what would be an actually good and egalitarian ethos to replace it, right? He says at one point, it is because we are so used to operating inside impersonal markets that it never occurs to us to think how we would act if we had an economic system in which we treated people based on how we actually felt about them. In the context of that comment, just talking about um, being sort of pre-modern societies where I can't remember exactly what it is, something like someone would work for years and years um, to build up wealth just to use it to humiliate somebody else. (laughs) It's like this horrible Mm. thing, right? But the very least, it's like, they didn't really care about wealth for its own sake. They, it was always obvious that wealth was for some other purpose, was a means to an end, rather than this that's pathological right. sense in which you build it up just to have it. Right? Yeah. Um, and so even in sort of worst forms, at the very least, that was unalienated, <laughs> uh, mm. that acquisition of, of wealth and, and power and status, right? Um, so we, hopefully we can do better than that. But, but at the very least, the, the alienation of um, our relations with one another should give us a clue to uh, both how we can criticize the the current uh, set of relations we have with one another built into the neoliberal system, but then also think of better ones. So you know what this makes me think then? So if if the Republican Party is characterized by that duality that we've been talking about, um, then what what characterizes the Dems? And if they don't have an explicit ethos then that doesn't mean there is no ethos. It means that there is an implicit ethos, an unconscious, an ideological one in the psychoanalytic sense, right? Uh, and so this is making me think then this is a, even maybe, this maybe even like intensifies the the sort of um, a critique against the Democratic Party. Um, because if it doesn't have the ethos, then it's just left simply with the sort of deterritorializing libertarian impetus that ha- that is that is faithful to that expresses fidelity to the mechanisms of the market, the axioms of price, right? So it it only has the sort of like destructive component. So what's the hidden ideological component? If it's not seeking a sort of construction of the good, if it's not seeking an explicit understanding of um of justice or something along those lines which we can contest we can think about because there are like you know justice democrats and aoc i think is a sort of like aberration from within that so i'm not talking about that we're talking about the sort of like um the typical party members of the democratic party so what would be their value well i think it's the implicit value that derives from capital power that's it which which makes me even which is a kind of cynical take but it means then that the norms and the values that sort of create 
uh, a sense of positive freedom, because I'm going to contest that you always have some, whether implicit or explicit, notion of a kind of like positive thing that you're moving towards. What is it uh, for the kind of uh, the 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 figures of the Democratic Party, or let's say even more, just the institutional logic of the Democratic Party, is I think is it's just some sort of like reinforcing logic to um, just perpetuate capital power via the price pricing process and the market mechanisms, right? Well, so it's that, go ahead. No, I was going to say that's exactly right because yeah. I think this is utterly pathological, right? Because there's this sense in which um, sort of major centrist democratic policy is not oriented towards anything, right? It's right. sort of giving it up as if that's a thing you can't do anyway, right? Um, there's almost like an invisible hand of, uh, of of like policy direction or something that you just have to follow. You can't actually choose for yourself because that would be in some sense um, positing a notion of the good, which you're not allowed to do. That's against the rules. The referees will call a technical foul on you if you do so. Um, you think about what's the what are the major policy either achievements or policies that have been offered by the Democratic Party in the past, what, 20 years? I mean, it's the Affordable Care Act, right? It's number one. Yeah, health care, yeah. Which literally, what is the point of it? There, There isn't one. There's not a clear point to it. Yeah, right? mandatory privatized health care. That's the point. It, yeah, it's just saying, what do we have to do to get as many people... Uh, access, which of course does not mean actually having, it means just in some sense being able to get via certain means healthcare, and then coming up with the most Rude Goldberg ridiculous machine for doing so, right? And not even fighting hard to make sure that there was a public option in there as well, which would have been an actually pretty transgressive thing uh, on its own right. And then ends up making health insurance cost more for most people, especially me. I was on an independent plan. And then my uh, I went on Obamacare when it came out. Uh, I think back in what 2012, 2013, and uh, my premiums uh, doubled with a higher deductible, right? And part of that was you know replacing catastrophic plans, right, which was a good thing. Um, but there was no actual sort of clear conception of how this would benefit people. It was just a machine governed by the laws of what we can do, right? Given the institutional constraints that exist. And, we're, and most of those constraints are obviously just self-imposed. Like we can't do anything that will hurt the profits of insurance companies um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, there's no there's no clear conception of what this is supposed to do. What is the end here? What is the goal? There isn't one. Well, I think, and if you don't have a strong ethos, what happens is, is even the language of equality, um, and, and the things that maybe the Dems would say that is their ethos, the problem is, is it's all refracted through the lens of capital power, right? So again, it's not some notion of um, like a rich egalitarian concern for, um, uh, for, for like to define, if you will, a national community. It's much more about the values that they express are subordinated to the primary concern, which is a type of I think libertarianism, if you can think of it in that way, it's a sort of distorted libertarianism, one that like a strict, um, like Nozick type would probably fucking hate. But there is there is something about it that it's driven by um, the 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 the, the deterritorializing, destructive pathology that we were talking about previously that defines, if you will, the movement of the market. And I think that's really the the central 
aim or the kind of central motivator of the Democratic Party, which means that their values, those implicit values, are sort of all kind of distorted ethoses. You know, they might have some sort of implicit ideological concerns, like I said, for equality, but it's always going to be subordinated to their primary concerns, right? Or maybe it's something about like pragmatism, not wanting to rock the boat, uh, this sort of like um, this this fake idea of the marketplace of ideas where we get together and we bandy about uh, ideas together and things will, you know, the truth will surface or something along those lines, which again, it's all very vacuous and flimsy. There's no strength in it. There's no power in it right? They don't actually have any strength, which is why as much as people can like rip on the opening um, monologue of, uh, uh, of what's his name, from the fucking TV show, uh, oh god, the Aaron Sorkin show with, um, West Wing? Not West, not West Wing, the other one that he did. Um, Network? The Network? The, the, was it called or, The Network? It wasn't called that, but the Jeff Daniels one, yeah. Yeah, the Jeff Daniels one. You know, the opening, god, I can't remember the name of it right now. Um, the opening speech where he's like – he basically says to one of the persons – and I can't remember if it was the, the guy or the gal. But he says like – he's like, hey, look, if Democrats are so fucking smart, how come you lose so goddamn all, all the time, <laughs> right? And that's it. That's it. It's They lose because they don't have power because there's a smugness. And um, I think this really relates to the final point of Graeber where he says there's a smugness and there's been a place. There's one place where the left has been able – to exhibit power. It's not in the sphere of politics, though. It's not really in the sphere of transforming society. That's still subordinated to the logic of capital. I would say subordinated to the sort of like libertarian notion of deterritorialization, price movement, etc. But where is the place where the, the, the kind of like liberal left has been able to exhibit power? Where is it, Troy? Uh, making sure that there are uh, female and uh, POC superheroes in our movies. Well, that too. <laughs> that too. Um, the university. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the um, the radicals of the '60s. Graeber has a little bit of a go at them, and uh, or or maybe not a go at them for their activities, but a sort of like a diagnosis of maybe the problem of the university being the place as the sort of concession that the left has. Um, acceded to to kind of say, yeah, that'll be the place where we can distill our information and pass on our values to the next generation. The problem is— We can is, pursue a conception of the good, right? We can exactly. pursue goodness, truth, and beauty. The problem yeah. is, is, one, does it have any effect or is it just a sort of like peripheral novelty? Um, and two, is this just like the longest long game in the history of the world? Like what's the deal? Like <laughs> One of these gonna days, educate. they're going to do their readings, Austin. <laughs> generations from generations from generations from now, like our great-great-great-great-grandchildren, they're going to be the ones who finally, we can we can say, are the culmination of our teaching of the <laughs> radical neo-Marxist, uh, postmodern neo-Marxist ideas. We've been putting but, yeah. Marxism in video games for years now, and it still hasn't <laughs> happened. Yeah. But I thought that was a really interesting part of the essay to kind of like finish. Didn't, didn't, did you... Agree. Oh, it was so it was so good. Just to go back to that point from when we started talking about this, that how much this resonates with right now in the way that you wouldn't have expected, given that the narrative has been that the Republican Party completely changed four years ago. Here's here's Graeber talking about um, Bush voters. 
He says, why do working class Bush voters tend to resent intellectuals more than they do the rich? And so he has in there like, you know, Bush and his whole, you know, Ivy League educated, mm. uh, most privileged family in the country status. It's the kind of person, again, like Trump, right? Incredibly rich, incredibly privileged. He's a New Yorker. He has disdain for common people, clearly hates them and has contempt for them, right? But why do they still resent intellectuals more than that, right? Uh, it seems to me, he says, that the answer is simple. They can imagine a scenario in which they might become rich, but cannot mm. possibly imagine one in which they or any of their children would become members of the intelligentsia, right? And he has this um, thought experiment of a, of a mechanic's daughter as um, an illustration here. If that mechanic's daughter wishes to pursue something higher, more noble for a career, what options does she really have? Likely just two. She can seek employment at her local church or join the army, right? Mm. So basically it's saying you can join the right, and pursue a conception of the good, however disastrous that will be for your own spirit and for the society in which you live, or you can join the army, right? And you'll get to do maybe a little bit of good as well as be a part of, a constitutive part of, you know, an overall project, which is very destructive as well. So basically two overall destructive projects. But you get to pursue a conception of the good, which is necessary for a human being to do to realize their humanity, right? And the left doesn't offer that. The only way it offers that is to join the university. That's it which is itself a soul-sucking enterprise that um, tries to destroy your any uh, pursuit of goodness, truth, and beauty as much as they can as well through its structural features, even though I think from the majority of the people in there, they, they do have that same goal. Um, and I think he's right, and it's the exact same as it is now, right? What is owning the libs if not the resentment that's attached to that exact aspect? It's the same thing, just in different terms, right? Hmm. Hmm. It's interesting. I, I like this bit where like, uh, so this child in this thought experiment, a mechanic from Nebraska, knows it's highly unlikely that his son or daughter will ever become an Enron executive. But it's possible. And that's it, right? It It, it is that that promise of glory, right, that courts us on the path of sanctification to be more and more faithful to the fantasy, right? It is definitely a possibility. And it's a possibility that the Republican Party wields, whereas the Democratic Party doesn't often wield some sort of thing like, hey, this is this is the goal that we're aiming towards. This is the thing. And then the next sentence is, there's virtually no chance, on the other hand, that his child, no matter how talented, will ever become an international human rights lawyer or drama critic for the New York Times. Setting aside the international human rights lawyer one, which is interesting, um, the issue of the drama critic for the New York Times, well, why would that person even want to when they look at the New York Times as being an, uh, a, a, a sort of like periodical without an ethos? It's like, what are you going to do? Are you just going to talk about like grumpy art shit? Like, what, what am I going to do? Sit in New York and... <laughs> like uh, drink cocktails and live like the sex in the city life. Like that's not really appealing to everybody. Some people might find that very appealing. People who are already maybe inclined towards a sort of like East Coast liberal elite kind of bougie life, but not everybody's going to find that appealing. There's not much gravitas there, right? So they're kind of looking at it like, oh, why would I want to be a member of the quote intelligentsia? It seems kind of vacuous, right? Like what's the point, you know? Yeah, I mean, and... These people nowadays, as opposed to in 2007, being blue checks are clearly miserable. So nothing about getting totally. a, a more in, inside view of their life has made it any, any more attractive. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then so um, I guess to kind of like wrap up the, the main segment here. So this this paragraph, and uh, I tweeted this out because I love it so much. So I'm going to read uh, – I'll probably read the whole thing. It's kind of long though. So bear with me, listeners. 
Um, he basically says, so this is the secret of nobility. To be noble is to be generous, high-minded, altruistic, to pursue higher forms of value. But it is also to be able to do so because one does not really have to think too much about money. This is precisely what our soldiers are doing when they give free dental examinations to villagers. They are being paid, modestly but adequately, to do good in the world. Seen in this light, it is also easier to see what really happened at universities in the wake of the 1960s, the settlement, as he mentions above. Campus radicals set out to create a new society that destroyed the distinction between egoism and altruism, value and values. It did not work out, but they were effectively offered a kind of compensation, the privilege to use the university system to create lives that did so, in their own little way, to be supported in one's material needs while pursuing virtue, truth, and beauty, and above all, to pass that privilege on to their own children. One cannot blame them for accepting the offer, but... Neither can one blame the rest of the country for resenting the hell out of them. Not because they reject the project, as I say. This is what America is all about. And I thought that that was really profound. Because I think it also, again, written in 2007, and I was like, holy shit, this could have been written yesterday. Yeah. Right? Like, this is a really good um, assessment, I think, of, of maybe what has been a constant... Like, why is it that the Republican Party is able to feign interest and, and kind of, like, be the spokesperson for um, more uh, populist working-class concerns? How is that even possible? And it's because the Democratic Party has become the party of liberal elites. And the party itself, as popular political institutional apparatus, may have very weak um, a very weak ethos. But the strong ethos of the liberal left, the strong ethos of the progressive left, or maybe even of the radical left, does have a footprint, but it's in the university system, right? The problem is, is what effect does that have? Um, what does that lead to? I, it not only leads to resentment from people who are outside of that, but I think it also leads resentment them themselves because they look at the world as though I'm stuck within this ivory tower. I want my ideas to be received publicly, right? There's a sort of like frustration of the public, of, of wanting to be the public intellectual, of not wanting to be trapped in the ivory tower. And so you kind of retreat oftentimes, I think. A lot of professors do, academics do. They retreat into the ivory tower because of a resentment, because of a frustration, because they feel that kind of, that their ideas are only they only matter in that little tiny context. And so there's a kind of tension there on the sort of like non-Republican, you know, uh, in the non-Republican sphere. I don't want to say left because, I mean, who knows what we mean by left here, right? But but it does seem that there's resentment coming from both ways there. And that kind of like reinforces the gap, right? So, yeah. No, that, that's um, that's definitely accurate. Although I think that the the one silver lining is in 2007, doesn't seem the, doesn't seem like there's any sort of recognition of the kind of diagnosis that Graeber is giving here, and no, certainly no movement within the left to bring out that stronger, more vital ethos. But now there is. It's still small, and it's powerless mm. within the party for the most part. But it exists. It's recognizable, right? And you know the figures who are involved here, and certainly there's a, a groundswell, especially among young people. Um, where, yeah, 
there's there's something burgeoning there and, and who's to say if it's going to have um any effect at all in the future or at least soon enough to to mitigate things like like climate change and um you know the debt cliff that's that's coming for people of our generations we uh enter into having families and stuff but uh it's at least there um and i think again it's in large part due to um graper's influence that uh which is a nice way to to wrap this up and, and celebrate his life as something that's that was noble that did have uh this high-minded um effect on the world so mm. yeah if he can do it we can too hmm I can't yeah. think like LeBron James, but I can. <laughs> I can hopefully uh, theorize like David Graeber, or at least you know, ten percent of it. Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he's I was, one of I was figure... hoping you would say that I actually can at least shoot like LeBron James, but you couldn't even. Well, you did. That. You did send me a video of that, like trampoline gym or whatever it is, where people can jump and they can dunk. So I want to do that, that so bad. In that gym, you can dunk like LeBron. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gotta get video of that and then just Photoshop the trampolines out. <laughs> Holy shit, this guy's head's above the rim. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, you know how I like to call Alex Caruso the accountant? Because he kind of looks like an accountant? Yeah. You, you would literally be the professor. That would be a badass basketball nickname dude i know there already is a professor though it's the dude that was on like the the and one tours and stuff like that remember him oh was he like a rucker park guy uh i don't remember i don't know what that means but he was uh he's like a street baller yeah he's like an I mean, and one guy mixtape guy yeah 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 one of those guys and he goes by the professor and he's just got like insane handles right um why is he called yeah. the professor does he wear glasses or something because he takes you to school man oh yeah yeah okay Come on. <laughs> <laughs> that was a setup and I missed it. I know. All right. I say we go ahead and wrap up the uh, main segment there. That was a lovely chat. Check out the essay. Uh, like I said, I'll put a link down below. Um, or you can just give it a quick Google. Army of Altruists by David Graeber. It's good shit. Yep. All right, sweet. So now let's transition into our final segment of the episode. This is the Sticky Leaves, where one of us gets to talk about something that is giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So, Troy, it is your turn. What's making you happy at the moment? Something that I've really enjoyed and that was kind of surprising to me over the last several weeks is this show on Hulu called Rami. Have you seen it? What's it called? Rami? No. Have you even heard? You know who Rami Youssef is? No. He's a comedian. Um, I don't know what he did before this show, but he's kind of become a star. I think he won a Golden Globe for the oh, show. Shit. I don't remember if it was for acting or for writing. He he, he writes and directs and stars in the show. Um, he's a uh, like I think he's in his mid twenties or maybe late twenties or early thirties. I don't know exactly, but he's a younger guy, probably younger than us. He's twenty nine. Um, I'm like, okay. Googled. There you go. I'm looking he was at him. Like, I have no idea who this guy is. I believe, like his character in the show, he was Egyptian-born, and then his family emigrated to the East Coast, New Jersey, New York area. Um, and the show is basically about what it's like to be a you know sort of uh, second-generation immigrant, someone who kind of grew up both in the world of your immigrant parents and in 
um, sort of American culture at the same time and has this kind of dual consciousness because of it. Um, and specifically having to do with the content of being someone who wants to be an observant Muslim um, hmm. in the process of also being fully integrated into being an American uh, culturally um, through everything from hip hop to your sex life to how you eat to everything else, right? While trying to be an observant Muslim. And I think um, in addition to just having that unique feature in that there isn't anything that tries to um, get at that same sort of duality, um, it's also just a wonderfully written uh, TV series. It actually, um, the first season I thought, there's been two seasons. The first season was really good. It was funny. The second season, which we just finished, was I think fantastic and up there with the recent series like Atlanta and Fleabag, which all kind of share a similar spirit to them and tone to them. They're kind of absurdist. They're very, they seem to be autobiographical, but in this almost like a gonzo way where it's like, it's someone's mm. life, but, but they're also, it's, it's kind of on LSD at the same time. Uh, Atlanta was the extreme of that. Right. And so Rami kind of just has little like micro doses uh, okay. of that. But if you liked those series and think those are like the the pinnacle of um, what storytelling is in this kind of new and unique form, where it's not really a comedy, not really a drama, it, the, the sort of um, not just the tone, but even the length and the beats of the of episodes are totally different than anything you see on mainstream television. Um, if you enjoy those series for those reasons, this is right up your alley as well. It's on Hulu, so I know probably a lot of people just either haven't heard of it or um, haven't watched it yet, uh, but it's 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 fantastic. Uh, it's also huh. got um, Ma- uh, Mahershala Ali uh, as a main character in season two, and he's wonderful. He plays the sheik of a Sufi community that Rami gets involved in. Um, oh, that's cool. And it's a great storyline. But um, I really, really love the show. I, I had heard that it was good, um, but was not prepared for just how uh, emotive it would be. Mm. Um, in some cases, how absurd it could be in this sort of Atlanta kind of way, and then in how profound it can be in a sort of a flea bag uh, way. Um, so I don't want to say too much about like the plot or any of that. Although I will say one thing I will uh, give up is that there, like um, Atlanta does, there are a number of episodes that take a side character and do the entire episode around them to try and explore um, their character as if they were a main character. And in Atlanta, those are some of the best episodes because the characters are so well fleshed out. Uh-huh. And the same thing, the same thing happens here, especially with Rami's mom, who is, I think, just one of the greatest. Like, you know how when, um, uh, what's his name, did Master of None? Um, Aziz? Aziz Ansari, yeah. And everyone fell in love with his dad mm-hmm. because he's so wonderful in it. Uh, Rami's mom is, I think, even better because she has actual episodes completely dedicated to her character. Is it actually his mom? No, it's not, unfortunately. Oh, that's that part would, of why Aziz so... Ansari's dad was so lovable, right? Because it was actually his dad and he clearly was not an actor. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, they're, they're in the rivers, and the best ones are about his mom trying to... Uh, mm. She actually becomes an Uber driver because she's sick of sitting at home and not uh, interacting with people and she is an Egyptian mother and brings those idiosyncrasies to being mm-hmm. an Uber driver, including making uh, 
you know, Egyptian desserts for her writers, which is very inappropriate. <laughs> and wanting to know everything about their personal lives and giving them advice about their love lives and their fashion and their hair and telling them to get married and stuff like that. So uh, if you have a mom like that also, um, who's a little bit of a busy buddy, but a beloved one, then you will mm-hmm. also get a kick out of uh, rooting for that character as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. so again, Rami, it's on Hulu. Um, it's a wonderful show. Uh, I, I can't imagine anybody watching it and, and not feeling is it, something profound about it. Is it too kind of easy to try to categorize this as being part of kind of the expression maybe of what we might call the new sincerity? Yeah, I mean, um, there are some ways that that term is used derogatorily. Yeah. And that certainly can be the case in a way that some phenomena within the new sincerity movement uh, get drunk on the sincerity, right? I don't think this is that. This is this is self-critical. Um, this is variegated in a way that's not purely uh, expressionistic, right? It's not just about sort of opening up the floodgates of sincerity and then getting drunk on it, right? Uh, I think it's very sober-minded. But it doesn't just kind of it doesn't just kind of revel in the ironic detachment that characterized so much of like '90s media and stuff definitely not right you might get the sense that oh this is kind of like louis right where it's the uh the comedian who's telling the story of his life from his perspective using his own name and going to be him you know ironically detaching from his environment uh doing a little bit of self-criticism in the process to make him look like he's wise it's not that right Uh, it's very much explorations into complex I i was thinking master of none when you first started talking about it i was wondering if it had that kind of tone to it is it more would that be a pretty good way of uh of pitching it yeah i think um master of none fleabag atlanta similar to all those probably master of none's the most i don't want to say superficial and not in a bad way but it's it's a little master of none's a little bit more um sort of you can kind of just let it fly by. Like I, I don't remember the plot details in Master of None the way that I do. I just remember when he's making Fleabag. pasta in Italy. That's all. You I can't remember. forget that, right? But that was yeah. more of a, like a aesthetic feature than it is a plot exactly. Feature, right? That's what I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't remember any of the content or anything like that. So plus, Aziz has been canceled, so we're not even allowed to talk to him. But talk about him. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I do wonder if if part of my distancing Master of None from his other shows is because he's been canceled since then <laughs> yeah like what if donald glover came out today and said he's voting for trump like would all of a sudden atlanta become a bad show in our minds without us re- like realizing it there'd be some real hot takes on what this is america means he should you know? he should do that as a uh like a public art project right yeah. just to see what would happen to his various creations that are unimpeachable right now oh man that hurts my heart to even think that because i just love him so much <laughs> Hey, I mean, Bowie did it, right? Bowie, like, started wearing swastikas in the 70s. And be like, hey, what will happen if I do this? Yeah, like, what will happen if I do this? Like, let's let's find out. Now, it's different, right? Because there weren't, like, a huge, like, a movement of people who were advocating for that. Um, But he was just like, um, you know, not in the same way that, you know, satanic metal bands in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, appropriated cultic and satanic imagery just for shock value, right. I think it was a slightly more of an uh, intentional effort than that. It wasn't just shock. It was more to see what will happen to my image and I can, what, if I could, what I can do to play off this. But, you know, you could do a God. similar – you couldn't do a similar thing with Nazi symbols today because of the context is different. But there's probably That's, something you could do. 
talk about fucking risk reward ratio, man. Like that's a <laughs> fucking gamble. Like, could you imagine? I'm trying to think. Like, could you? Like, who would be who would be the equivalent today? And and what would they do? Yeah, I mean, I guess it is like somebody putting on a MAGA hat, right? Maybe maybe the same thing was what happened to Kanye when he put on the MAGA hat. The difference is that Kanye Kanye's wasn't doing it. I don't think with the intentional criticism built into it, right? So, I mean, I don't know. Who knows? What well, maybe like five years from now he'll come out and be like, "Hey, I've actually been diary making a diary this whole time." And uh, here you go. These are my thoughts, and I planned this. You can see it's been like timed, time stamped. You know, I, I planned this ten years ago, and this was a whole thing. And then I, I think people would be angry with him, but um, they're already angry with him. But like, what would it be? Like, how could you even could you even do that today? I wonder if if you could even. I, I don't even think it's possible to make that kind of statement today. You know? Yeah, given given the media culture the way that it is, yeah, yeah. probably not. Yeah, at least not as bold although, of a statement. It'd have to be like more micro. But go ahead. Yeah, although it would have been great if Kanye had run for president, become president, and then been like a full-on leftist. I'm a Marxist, like, motherfucker. Yeah, just be like, yeah, it's MAGA, but MAGA for universal healthcare, right? Kangaroo courts, you're all going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of Kanye, you know, he was on Joe Rogan's podcast recently. Yeah, I unfortunately heard about that. Yeah, I heard about it. I didn't listen to it. I don't really listen to the podcast uh, anymore, but I catch snippets and I still get um, the YouTube algorithm gives me little bits here and there. And I only watched like a, I don't know, like a 30 second clip or something like that. But um, it is kind of interesting. It is kind of interesting to think of the influence of podcasts now, isn't it? Um, or certain podcasts anyway, um, as a sort of, I don't know if it's like an alternative even, but as a sort of like mainstream source for how people are receiving information. And I wonder how many people were, I don't know, influenced by or completely turned off by, which it seems like most people were kind of like mocking Kanye, but I don't know. Yeah, Yeah. it does seem like podcasts only have that, um, that role in society right now amongst sort of, you know, the intelligentsia because it seems like the last bastion of where you can find unadulterated um, individual thought. Like this is what the person actually thinks. Or just this is what the person actually thinks. They're not sort of cultivating it for a specific, even though they clearly are doing that. It doesn't seem that way because of the sort of rough and ready, yeah, do a podcast, you know, in your bedroom. No one sees it but you before you publish it kind of a thing, right? Like blogs were. Um, 15 years ago and uh of course it's not going to be like that within the next decade right it'll be a fully marketized um product by then and then everyone will hate it just like everyone yeah. hates social media now even though they're still on it yeah i mean it's already starting to happen you know media companies are kind of like serving as the uh the kind of central hub and they have like just spokes coming out from them that are their various products, you know, and, but they're the ones kind of controlling the narrative. I mean, Spotify was trying to do it. I don't know if, if they'll have much success, but they were trying to, um, censor Rogan, right. Cause he just signed a deal with Spotify. So, hmm. uh, Spotify is, you know, kind of getting exclusive access to certain content and, um, there are a couple other, I can't remember. There's this one podcast media company that like, uh, it's like like illumination or some shit that like Russell Brand's podcast is on. I, I can't remember what it's called, but like it it you have to become a member of that platform of that subscription 
in order to access these certain podcasts. And then, of course, once that's the case, once they become the platform and the gatekeeper, then they can start to exhibit creative control, you know? so Yeah, not always explicit creative control, just a, you better do this if you want to keep your ad revenue control. Yeah, or which is or they're, going, they're going to just select the voices that they invest in to produce the content on their platform, mm-hmm. right? So yep. it, it doesn't even it doesn't even have to be the kind of strong arm version. It's more of the soft power version where it's well we're only going to um, uh, we're only going to produce content and therefore we're only going to put the whole strength of our marketing force behind those voices that already align with our ideological ethos. Yeah. How did we get from Rami to this? Fuck man, Kanye. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jesus. Well, yeah, okay, so back to Rami. I'll check it out. I have never even heard of it, Um, but I dug Master of None. I I mean, like you said, I don't really remember. It didn't, like, imprint itself on me like Fleabag has or, uh, like, fucking uh, Atlanta has, but but nevertheless, I enjoyed it, so uh, if it kind of has that vibe to it, I'm I'm down. Yeah, I think you'll definitely like it. Sick. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Yeah, dude? Yeah, yeah. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. If you want to uh, contribute to the conversation, if you got questions on Graber, if you got any thoughts on Graber, anything like that, of course, you can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us, owls underscore at underscore dawn. Um, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. You can find us that way. Obviously, if you're listening to the website, we do have a website, owls at dawn.com. You can comment below there. So there are ways to get in touch. Um, As Troy said at the top of the show, if you want to support us, that would really be helpful for us. Um, You can go to patreon.com slash owlsatdawn. There's also a link down below that you can click for that. And I think that's pretty much it. Unless there's anything else you got to say, dude. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vidani, Amerikanski. Yeah!